during the season of uh pastor they put your 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 towel up here for me but i got hair so i'm not i don't have to wipe anything off so <laughs> so i uh we spent some time in isaiah at, at brookwood for um the season of advent i just wanted to share with you one of those messages that uh, my wife told me was, uh, was meaningful. And so, you know, when the pastor's wife says it's, it's all right, that means it's really all right. So, because she tells me when it's not. So, <laughs> um, but I, uh, I really am thrilled to be here. I, I absolutely love Dole and Moraria. Uh, they are such dear friends to Selena and I. We don't see each other as often as I would like to because we're in different ends of, uh, of the parishes. But, uh, but it really is a delight uh, whenever the Lord allows us to be together. And so uh, we bumped into each other at the Faith and Fostering Banquet back at the 1st of December. And uh, it was really good to share that meal with uh, Dola Moraria. And just to, just to, to have a, a brother in ministry, uh, a friend in ministry is a good thing. Um, a lot of times as pastors, uh, it, can, it can be quite lonely. Um, and we've got a good, uh, we've got good relationships with a lot of uh, brother pastors here and are thankful for that. And um, we, uh, so I guess Selena and I were here, we were here a couple of years ago and um, we, uh, we, we've had, um, we've had one grandchild since then. We got another one on the way. Um, so our little family's growing and uh, it is quite exciting. We love the grandbabies. Um, like I didn't know you could love somebody. Uh, I did not understand at all. Everybody kept telling me, but I didn't get it until it happened. And then it was like, wow, this is not the same. I love the kids because they gave me the grandkids. <laughs> so, but anyway, so I want us to spend some time here in, um, in the prophet uh, Isaiah. These are some very familiar words to us. And um, I, I, wor- I want you to leave your Bibles open because we're going to walk through these first 20 verses Together, We'll just read together here in a moment verses that are familiar to us, beginning in verse 8. Um, and I wonder if you would, in honor of the reading of God's Word, stand together. And uh, we have a little saying that we like to say at Brookwood. And so if you'll just repeat after me, this is the Word of God, for the people of God, to know the will of God, to do it, and to live. Hear the Word of the Lord. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse, if you rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God. Father, would you, Lord, answer the prayer of my brother pastor? And God, would you grant uh, revelation in this moment? Give us revelation. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Give us courage and obedience to obey. God, that this word tonight might change us, that we might leave this place different than the way we entered it, that we might be more in line, again, with the prayer of our pastor tonight that, that prayed that we would be a people who were reflecting your glory 
uh, in a dark, in a dry and weary land. Lord, that's what our world needs is flourishing followers of Jesus. God, may we be those people as we leave this place and live our lives today and the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so uh, we did just come out of Advent season, Christmas season. It's a season when we think about hope quite a bit. I think we have, when we come to Christ, when we come to our understanding of of our our faith, we, we have hope for our past. We have hope for our past failures. We have hope that in Christ, all the promises of God have been fulfilled in his virgin birth, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. There is salvation and there is forgiveness for our past. Amen. We certainly have hope for the future. And I I pray Maranatha, right? Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm ready, right? I'm ready. I used to say, as a younger man, I used to say, well, I want to do this first, and I want to do that first. I don't want to do anything else again. I just want the Lord to come home, right? I want him to come back. I want him to draw his people to himself. And so there's great assurance through his resurrection that there's a promise of eternal life. Hoping the confidence that one day Christ will return and will restore this world, and we will reign with him forever. I'm ready for that. But we got to do something about the now. And we do have hope for now. We do, friends. We have hope. Even though this world is fracturing daily under the weight of human sin, suddenly gender and sexuality are in question. Homes are in disrepair. Governments are corrupt. Churches are foundering under poor leadership and the influx of culture wars that impede their gospel purpose. We live in a world that desperately needs hope. But here's the good news. We have hope. We have hope. This word of the prophet Isaiah is a word written to a people that in in this particular place and time in history, geopolitically, have very little hope. Things are not going well for the people of God. But Isaiah is a word of reality and judgment and promise of hope. And so I want us to look at the condition of God's people here and find some hope for us today. A people in Isaiah's day, like us in our day, who are facing unrelenting human failure and the resulting undeniable human predicament that leaves us only to be thankful for a holy God willing to do for his people, what we cannot do for ourselves. So, again, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, very familiar passage, right? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be, say it with me, white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, and I said, Brother Doyle, I said uh, at Brookwood, if you're, if you're an Alabama fan, I don't know what that says about you. But... It's probably not what Isaiah was talking about. Though your sins are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. So it's a contrast, right? You've got scarlet red, you've got crimson red, and pure white snow, or the pure white wool of a lamb. And so you've got a contrast of an indelible, unwashable, inescapable, provable stain 
against something pure, something without blemish, something without stain. And God is saying to his people, he's, 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 it, it, he, he's saying, though, he's, he's proclaiming a reality. Your sins are like scarlet, but I'm going to do something for you. And so what Isaiah does is Isaiah moves on from here and, and, and really in concentric circles, he begins to pronounce judgment on the people of God and then the surrounding peoples, not, and the surrounding peoples, right? People groups. And then he comes back in the end and he gives us hope and a suffering servant. But what he does in Isaiah chapter one is he begins to lay out the reality of what's happening. He, he, he presents his case before the people. Here is your dilemma, right? Here, let me, let me present to you the failure of your people. And so he begins in the first verses of Isaiah chapter 1 with, he, he begins to, use, he uses three different words for what we would call sin. We just really, in our English language, we have one word for sin. We say sin, we know what it is. But in, in the Bible language, there were, there were multiple words that helped the people to understand the fullness of their sin. We know from the New Testament, Romans chapter 14, says that anything that's not a faith is sin. And so that, that lets me know that as far as my life goes, on my best day, I'm a sinner. And on my worst day, I'm a sinner, right? And so we say at Brookwood, and you probably do it here too, that, that we, we, we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. That's a very important distinction for us to understand. And so let's look at these words for sin. Certainly the, the first word is here in verse 18, though your sins are like scarlet. That, that's a, a word um, that, that is the, the word kata uh, in the language of the Old Testament. It, it means failure. You, you, you've missed the mark that God has invited his people to. Which, what is the mark that God has invited his people to? What, what, is the, what, is the, um, what, what has he laid out to people as his hopes for their lives? What's well, in the Ten Commandments, right? And the Ten Commandments are honor your relationship with me, love God, and love your neighbor, right? I mean, that's it. That's what Jesus said. That's the greatest commandment. Love God. Second like unto it. Love your neighbor. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the summation of the Old Testament. Love God. Love your neighbor. And so that's what he's laying out for them. And in this word for sin here, though your sins are like scarlet, he's just saying you've missed it. You missed it in the in the New Testament, that, that word, uh, you might know that word, hamartia, right? Which is the, like, like missing a bullseye, right? It's like a, an arrow that's crooked, no matter how you shoot it, it's never going to hit its mark. Well, again, we, we sin because we're sinners. We are born to miss the mark. We, there's another word here uh, when we look in, um, in verse 3. I left my glasses at home. That's all right. We got good light up here. Um, we, uh, when we look here at verse three, nope, not verse three. It is all the way down in, oh, it's in verse two. It's in verse two. It is this word, uh, rebelled, which is also a word that's often translated transgress, transgress or trespass. It, it, it describes breaking trust with God, breaking covenant with him. He said to them, you love me, you love one another, and you're going to enjoy the benefit of my covenant promises. They have trespassed. They have transgressed. They have rebelled. They've broken trust with God. The last word is, is in verse 4. 
He says, you're a sinful nation. That's the word kata, a people laden with iniquity. Avon is the word. And it means something that is crooked, something that is wicked. Now, the, David says, King David says in Psalm 51, he says that in my mother's womb, I was, I was conceived in sin. I was born in iniquity. He's just saying I, I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner because I sin. That's what he's, I'm sorry, I said it wrong. I'm a sinner because I sin. I must, <laughs> I'm confusing myself, Jeff. I'm confusing myself. Um, David's saying I was born in iniquity. I was born in crooked. I was, I was, I was born this, this way. I sin because I'm a sinner. One of the commentators, as I was reading, uh, studying up for this, he, he said that the problem with, with most of us is that we spend so much time in our crooked way that it becomes the new straight way for us. We become so accustomed to our iniquity. We become so, we, we, we rationalize it. We excuse it. We explain it away. That what God says is wrong becomes right to us. Did that describe the world that we're living in? I mean, the things that we're discussing today, we would have all thought was, was ridiculous 10 years ago. Absolutely ridiculous. If you were to approach the, um, any human being and, and the, at the turn of the 20th century with the issues that we're dealing with today, they, they would have thought we would be crazy, right? Insane, out of our minds. But that's because we spent so much time in iniquity that what is obviously wrong has become straight. Isaiah goes on here to describe the predicament that they're living in. He, he describes in verse 3 this illogical amnesia. An illogical amnesia. This doesn't make sense. Look at what he says in verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. The ox knows where to go when it's time to eat, right? The ox knows when it's time to come in and rest, the ox knows where the hay is. The ox knows where the place to rest and to be safe is. The ox, the donkey knows. They go back home. But you, Israel, you don't know. My people do not understand. It is an illogical amnesia. These people who have been watched over and cared for described over and over again, experiencing the provision and the protection and the deliverance of God, right? They don't know where to go. In the Message Bible, it says, the ox knows who's boss. The question is, are you dumber than an ox? These people have turned from the living God to wooden idols, blind, deaf, and mute idols who simply exist at their, the beck and call of human beings. It is remarkable that God's people have done exactly that. But Romans chapter 1 tells us that the more we turn away from God, the more turns us over to our right. And suddenly we've turned over the creator for creation. We've chosen to worship what he has created instead of the one who created it all. I love Alexander McLaren, who is a preacher of old. This is a great statement. My favorite statement from this little season of study. 
He says, man's neglect of God's benefit puts him below the animals that know the hand that feeds and governs them. Some men think it is a token of superior culture, an advanced view to throw off allegiance to God. It is a token that they have less intelligence than their dog. Illogical amnesia. Friend, don't, friends, don't forget the one who cares for you. Don't forget that there is one who has sent his only son to save you. Don't forget. Right? Don't forget. That's what the Old Testament God says to his people over and over and over again. Do not forget. Remember. I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the hand of Egypt, who delivered you from the bonds of slavery, who delivered you, who cared for you, who led you, right, by a pillar of fire and by a cloud, who defeated the armies of Egypt, who defeated the armies before you in the promised land. I am your God. Do not forget me. We do well to remember this, friends. He says, uh, then in, in verse 4, he uses this word here. He says, we're a sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They, they have forsaken the Lord and have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Their predicament is not only this illogical amnesia, but it's this estrangement. And this word for estrangement here, usually we think estrangement, we think about families in crisis, we think about you know, children that are not relating to their parents in a healthy way. We think about spouses that are estranged from one another. But we generally think about it in ways we think about adults who are able to look after themselves that, that are just not relating to one another well. But, but this word for estrangement really uh, paints a picture of an infant that's been abandoned, estranged from the only one who can care for it. You are estranged. You, you, you've left behind because this illogical amnesia. You've left behind the only one who can care for you. The one who cares for you as a mother cares for her child. You've left me behind, God's saying. And so now where are you? You're like a helpless infant in the desert. And he says, beginning in verse 5, he talks about that they're just unwell people. Why, why will you be struck down? Will, will you con, why will you continue to rebel? Your whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head. There is no soundness in it. Only sores, only bruises and raw wounds. They're not pressed up or bound up or softened with oil. They're living an impotent life. There's no health. There's no soundness to them. No wonder the world looks at the church. And says, what, 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 do you, what do you have that I need? When we look like this, right? When we've forgotten the hand that feeds us. When we've abandoned ourselves to this estranged relationship with the God who would care for us. We, we look like a people who are not sound. We don't look like a people who are loving God and loving others. We're not flourishing in this world. We look like we're wandering without direction. We look over into verses 9 and 10. This is startling. Suddenly, we have a people who have forfeited the promises of God. They, 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 have, they are living in the absence of flourishing. 
They are languishing. They're not thriving. They are shriveling instead of growing. They are stunted instead of nourished. These are startling words. Look at verse 9. He says, if the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, had not, I'm sorry, had not left us a few survivors, had not left us a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. Which means, what's, what's Sodom and Gomorrah like? They're gone, right? They don't exist. They have been erased from the planet. Now, why were they erased? Sexual sin, right? Immorality and injustice. So Genesis tells us a story about the sexual sin. And then Ezekiel chapter 16 tells us about the injustice in Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so we've got those, both those things happening. And there's a little bit of hope here. He says, you know, if God had not been faithful, you would have been like them. Well, that's different than saying you are them, except that's what he says next. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This is harsh. The people of God who have received all the promises of God, experienced the presence, the provision, the protection of God, are now being called Sodom and Gomorrah. A people wrought with sexual sin, immorality, and injustice. They have forgotten for what they were created and they have forgotten to look after each other. This is the state of God's people. Verse 11, we begin to see the resolution here. What is the resolution? Well, I think what we, when we read these words, this mirrors what we see in the New Testament. So when we, when we read the New Testament, we, we see something uh, of somewhat of a holy tension, right? A holy tension between human responsibility and divine ability, right? So there's some things that only God can do, but our access to the, what only God can do is through our responsibility, right? So his divine ability is only access to our human responsibility. So you can't have one without the other. It begins with him, but if I'm going to participate in this over here, that means I've got to be faithful. And so we, we begin with this idea of, of human responsibility. This idea, and so this is in uh, Philippians 2.13, where, where we're, we're being told there that, that um, he, Paul tells the church, you know, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? So you work it out, but know that it is God who is doing what? Working it in, right? It's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so we see that in Philippians 2.13 and 1 Corinthians 1.3, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 and 5.23. Paul makes it very clear that God's at work in his people, but it is his, people respons- his people's responsibility to work that out. All right? So there's a holy tension. That's the word I've been using since college in Bob Utley. Work out, right? Is, 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 is God's sovereign hand, but my responsibility. You see that? So look at how Isaiah paints this. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, why would God be saying that? Didn't he command them to do this? We read Leviticus, Right? So why would God say, I'm tired of this? 
We turn over to some of the minor prophets. He says, I, I despise, I despise your feasts, your sacrifice. Why would God say that if he commanded them to do it? Because it lacks the heart, right? There's, there's, no, there's no heart in their activity. And so our activity with, without a heart for God. And so what the activity is meant to be is an expression of gratitude, right? An expression of repentance and an expression of remembrance. It's supposed to be a, an expression of those things. And when it's not an expression of remembrance and repentance, God says, I don't want it. I don't want it. So he says, what to me are these things? When you, when you come, verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? He said, I didn't call you in here to go through the motions. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. New moons, appointed feasts, my soul hates. You become a burden to me. These are not a blessing to God any longer. They are a burden to him. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It's injustice. That's going right back up to verse 10, calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. Your hands are full of innocent blood. Not the blood of heartfelt sacrifice, of remembrance and repentance, but the blood of injustice. You're not caring for one another well. You're not concerned about me and my presence any longer. You look more like the pagan world than you do like the people of God. Now, again, do you hear the message for the 21st century church here? Are you with me? Are we coming in here in this moment with empty worship? Are you coming in here thinking somehow, someway, your presence is impressive to God? We say all the time at Brookwood, you know, the world doesn't care where you park your car on Sunday morning. Does not care. Doesn't give a rip. What the world cares is what's happening in your heart. And that's what, the word, that's what God cares about. That's what his word is focused on here. So, so now we get into it in verse 16 and 17. What's it going to look like? What, is, what does God really want? Well, he, he wants, he wants spiritual activity that is, ref- that is on, the, on the outside, that's reflective of what's happening on the inside. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my eyes. Now, this is a, this is a, a direct reference to something that the people listening to Isaiah would have been very familiar with. And, and that is the, the ceremonial washing before you come in to worship. Before a scribe would, would put pen to paper or papyri, right, to, to record the words of the prophet. But before you did anything that was worship, you had to wash yourself. Now, was it so important that your skin be clean? Or was it important that you were representing on the outside of your body what was happening on the inside of your body, right? Of your soul, of your spirit, that, that, that you had been cleansed by, by God. And so what's happening out here, it's like when we are baptized, right? 
when we are baptized, I am reflecting through that physical act what God has already done spiritually in me, right? And so he's calling them here. He's saying, you, you, you got to cleanse yourselves. And then he, he shows them, removing the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. He says, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Again, friends, the, the world, the lost world outside of these doors and out beyond the doors of Brookwood, do not care where we park our cars on Sunday morning. They, they don't, they're not concerned about that at all. But I'm telling you, when they will pay attention, when we hate evil, when we love, when we seek for justice, I think that we ought to celebrate uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. This is a great example for us all. We, we celebrate that, right? But we realize that there's still an injustice happening to young women who are in a precarious situation, who feel like they have nowhere else to turn. Why isn't the church always at their doorstep ready to help them? Seek justice, correct oppression, right? We have a terrible, we have have an apparent economic disparity issue in Shreveport. Drive up and down the streets, go from one side of I-49 to the other side of I-49. It's apparent. Why is common ground and why, why, and why is the hub and why are those places of ministry always having to ask for more resources? Why, why isn't the church making sure that we are hand in hand, right? And with them providing all the resources that they need to do what's necessary to meet the needs of those who are in need. So, so, we, so we've got to realize that, that it's, in, it's important to me where folks park their cars on Sunday morning. I think God's people ought to be gathering together for worship and encouragement. I think that we ought to be seeking his will together as a community of faith. But as a pastor, I'm realizing that God is not going to call me to account based on how many people are seated in these seats. Pastor Doyle, he's not going to do that for us. I think what we are going to be held accountable for is that we measured ministry by what happens on post-Sunday, right? And pre-Sunday. What are the people doing? What are we giving them opportunity? What are we encouraging them to do? Isaiah says, this is what it's all about. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We, we, know, we know the words, right, of Jane that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep, keep oneself unstained from the world. The Lord is looking for heartfelt acts of compassion that are reflective of His hand of compassion in our life, he has protected, provided us for us, protected us, provided for us. He has offered and promised his presence with us. He only asks that we be a representative of that protection, that provision, and that presence in the lives of those who are in need. 
And that's when, when the people of God in the Old Testament get this, get this wrong, when they turn towards themselves and start kind of dusting themselves off and thinking, aren't we something because we're the people of God? And forget that they were called to be a blessing to the world. Things go sideways. They go completely sideways. So God's divine ability is here in verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, red as crimson, indelible, unwashable, inescapable. They will be white as snow. Pure like wool. He does that, friends. We don't do that. He's not asking us to do these things so that we can be white as snow and pure as wool. He's, doing the, he's asking us to do those things because we are white as snow and pure as wool. Because in the righteousness of Christ that comes by grace and through faith, we are the people of God declared righteous. I love the words of, uh, of Jesus' half-brother Jude, Jude 24, uh, I absolutely, um, this is just one of the most splendid doxologies in all of Scripture. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Did you hear that? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He keeps me from falling away from him. If I could lose my salvation, friends... I'd have done, done it. Right? I can't do it. It's not me keeping me from stumbling. He keeps me from stumbling. And he presents me without blemish, blameless, in the presence of his glory. Do you understand that the light of God's glory spares no imperfection? It allows for no imperfection. But he presents me to himself without blemish in the righteousness of Christ. And he does this, I love this part, with great joy. Oh man, friends, the Lord loves his church. He loves us. He knows what is best for us. But we're like Adam and Eve, right? I just started my reading plan this, this past week, and I read in, in Genesis chapter 2 where God provides for them every tree in the garden except for one, and they are all pleasing to the eye and good for food. And what happens? Turn the page, right? Eve sees that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is pleasing to the eye. Check. God did that. Good for food. Check. God did that. And desirable for gaining knowledge. God didn't do that. God said, you trust in me. I'll give you all the knowledge you need as you need it. Because you can't handle it all at once. And look where we are. He, he keeps us from stumbling. He presents us blameless in his glory with great joy. He is the one who makes what is indelible, unwashable, inescapable, white as pure like wool. How does that happen? Well, Isaiah tells us, the latter half of Isaiah, he turns to a suffering servant. He tells us about one who will come on behalf of God's people and listen to the words that he says. He will be pierced for our transgressions. 
crushed for our iniquity. The sin of us all will be laid upon him. He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Paul says it this way, For our sake God made him who had no sin to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was pure became sin. He didn't become a sinner, but he became sin. That we who are utterly sinful might become the righteousness of God. So what's the outcome of this? Well, it's either eat or be eaten, friends. That's it. We're either going to flourish in the promises of God or we're going to be consumed by want, by the enemy. If you're willing, verse 19 says, and obedient, you're going to eat the good of the land. That's the, that's the whole promise, right? The land of what? The land of milk and honey, right? This land's going to provide for you everything that you need. Domestically, this land's going to provide for you everything you need. It's going to, there's, there's going to be no lack of, of, of need for you, or no lack of want. You're, you're, going to, you're going to have everything you need, everything you want. I'm going to take care of you. So, so he says, if you're willing and obedient, you're going to eat of the land. That's just an illustrative of God's presence, his protection, his provision, right? But if you refuse... If you want to stay in your sin, in your iniquity, in your transgression, you're going to be eaten by the sword. And what happened to God's people? They get eaten by the sword. But that's, that's the question for all of us. Are we going to eat the good of the land that God provides, His presence, His protection, His provision? Or are we going to be eaten by the land? Are we going to be consumed? In one place, there is no fear, Right? There's only confidence, there's only joy, there's only flourishing. Now on the other side, there's constant fear and worry and anxiety, anger. Peter says this, he says, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, here's the deal. I don't think that I can lose my salvation. Again, what God did, I can't undo. All right? But I think, even though for us the devil is a toothless we got a lot of lying slobber all over us. There's a whole lot of believers that are spending too much time in the lion's mouth. We don't look like the people of God. We don't look like we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. He disrupts the goodness of God. He discredits the Christian. He robs us of the flourishing that God means for us to know and enjoy. It's not what God means for us. He means for us to eat of the good of the land. He means for us to enjoy his presence, his provision, and his protection. All his promises that have their yes, their amen in Christ. That's what he means for us. So this morning, the question this morning, it's not Sunday morning, it's Wednesday evening. <laughs> this evening, the question is, do, do you know your sin? Now, that's really the first thing. You know, Brother Dole, when we're leading anybody to Christ, the first thing you've got to do, right, is convince them that they're a sinner. <laughs> you know? Do, do you know your sin? Do, do you know the sin, the iniquity, the transgression 
that is present in your life. I mean, we're, 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 we all recognize that we all struggle with that. Romans 7 gives us all uh, the, the freedom to, of the reality of sin. We don't have to be scared of that. We need to know our sin. We need to name it. Know the consequences of that sin. Now, in Christ, the consequences of you continuing in your sin is, the, is being eaten, right? Walking around with lion slobber all over you. If you're not a believer, the consequences of your sin is eternal separation from God. And I would even say to you, if you're a believer and you're not willing to deal with your sin, if, you see, if you're just going to knowingly continue in unrepentant sin, you need to, we need to talk about your salvation, brothers and sisters. I mean, if you think that because there's forgiveness in Christ that you can just keep on doing what you've always been doing, I don't know that you understand salvation. We all have besetting sin. There's a, there's a role of besetting sin in our lives. It keeps us running back to God, all right? Willingly committing sin without repentance. Friends, that's not a sign of salvation. The last thing I would encourage you to do is to know your Savior. Know your Savior. He is good. He has taken all of your sin, all of your iniquity, all of your transgression upon himself. All of our best efforts that miss the mark, all of our broken trust with God, all of our crookedness, all of our wickedness, he has taken that on himself. And on the cross, declared, it is finished. And three days later, he rose again. So that means by trusting in him, I too can live again. I have felt the weight of sin. I can't carry it. I can't do it. I I have lived through the dark night of the soul of trying to be good enough to undo what I did. You know what that led me to? The, the, the lowest, darkest place in my life. And that happened one year ago. One year. I'm 54 years old. Been preaching for 25 years. And one year ago, I got to the lowest place I've ever been because I was trying to fix all my past failures by being a good little boy. And I realized I couldn't do it. I can't do it. I have to trust that though my sins are like scarlet, he has made them white as snow. Amen? So, so we sing. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it 
white as snow. Amen? Amen. He washed it white as snow. Friends, he'll wash your sin white as snow so that my life can reflect his compassion towards me and my compassion towards others, that I will live a life trusting in him to eat of the land that he has promised to me to flourish. It's a dry and a weary land, the psalmist says, but there's hope. There's hope in Christ. Oh, Father, I ask right now that you would make it very clear to every person in this room that you have called us to something that is not about us. But in in trusting in you and and in coming to you, for that may mean for some in this room, it might mean as a believer just coming in repentance. To say, oh God, I've been trying to do this on my own. I've been acting as if my behavior impresses you. God, I'm trusting in you tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning back into your protection, your provision, and your presence. For some of you, that may mean, may mean salvation tonight. It, it may mean, I, I, I know that I am a sinner and I know that I, I can't get away from it. I can't outrun it. I can't, I can't, it's, it's an irremovable stain. But I want it gone. I want it to be removed. I want to be free from this. I promise you, brother, sister, friend, the Lord himself is here in this place and he desires for you to trust in him so that by grace and through faith, you might receive Jesus Christ as your savior. I absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this church family is here to welcome you to follow Jesus Christ. But what if we left this place and went out tomorrow to work and to eat lunch and decided that along the way we're going to be a people that reflect the goodness of God to every person that we meet. Wouldn't it be something if instead of folks saying that church doesn't do anybody any good, (laughs) they said those Christians, those Christians do a world of good. Father, help us to be the people that you created us to be in the image, in your image, in the likeness of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, may we be faithful in a pagan land that is full of illogical, unthinkable, sinful, iniquitous behavior. God, in a land that is dry, a land that is weary, God, may we be a people that are refreshing in this land, that bring the water of life, that bring the flourishing of Christ. God, to every person and every place that you take us, may we be faithful in those places with those people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.